0: So we're back in the Gospel of Matthew and we're dropping into a section where Jesus is giving his followers these warnings and encouragements before he sends them out. So these are the, you know, the 12 that have been hanging with Jesus, learning from him. They've been watching all that Jesus does. And now at this moment, it's this exciting opportunity for them to go out on mission and do the same stuff that they saw their master doing. And Jesus wants to get in a few kind of warnings, encouragements before he sends them out. And as a parent, I understand that. Uh, my son Simon's going off to college in a month or so, and I'm looking for opportunities to make sure that he knows everything that I know that he needs to know. And the other day, he's, you know, in his room playing video games, and I open the door, and I have three of these different lectures about video games, and I chose number two. And I opened the door, and I let, let him have it. And he looked at me with this big grin, and he said, Dad, you know, two months or so, you won't be able to give this to me anymore. And I said, well, that's why I'm doing it now. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I remember as a kid growing up, these opportune moments where a parent or some adult would teach Me as a kid, and um, for those of you guys who don't know, my dad is an avid skier, and so since the time I was six years old, we were going to the mountain in the winter and skiing on the lake in the summer, and we would go with other friends and families, normally to Tahoe, and I remember a a moment where a lesson was taught. We were at Tahoe, and I don't know if you guys have been there, but there's the California side and the Nevada side, on the Nevada side, there's gambling, and there's casinos, and the casinos there um, have these great buffets. So as a family, we would ski all day, and I remember this one time we were with another family, uh, the Mesmer family, and we um, skied all day, and then we'd go to the casino to eat at the cheap buffet. But to get to the buffet, you know what you have to do, right? You have to walk through all the slot machines, and there's like bells going off and, you know, lights and sounds and people crying in ecstasy and some in pain, and it's like this whole, d- you walk through there, and they're hoping that you'll, you know, play the slot machines on your way to eat this cheap buffet dinner. Well, this one evening, I remember we walked through one of these haras or whatever it was, and we're with the mesmers, and my sisters are teenagers, and I'm probably eight, with Mesmer family, two other teenage boys, and Don Mesmer, the dad, says, kids, stop, I wanna show you, teach you a lesson about what happens when you gamble. So we stop, and there's a quarter slot machine right there, and he takes a quarter out of his pocket, puts it in, pulls the lever, and it was jackpot. <laughs> and the lights go, and the sounds, and there's a flow of quarters coming out of this machine that I will never, ever forget. And I remember walking away from that and thinking, now I know what happens when you gamble. (laughs) And in the same way, Jesus, in this text, is gonna teach a lesson. So would you turn with me, with that in mind, Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 24. Jesus says to his disciples, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, and that was like the name of this lead demon in the first century, commonly known. And uh, basically what Jesus is saying is like, hey, the head of this house myself has been called the head of demons. And if that's been said about me, how much more the members of the household And what's so powerful, even in these opening words, is that basically Jesus is warning his disciples they can expect the same treatment that he got. He was called the lead of demons, so also will they. But what's even more special to me as I look at this is notice he starts off talking with this analogy of student, teacher, but then he ends with this analogy of household. It's this incredible term of inclusion and intimacy. He calls his disciples his family, the members of his household. And it goes on, he says, verse 26, so don't be afraid of them. And you ask who? Well, I think he's referring back to those who are gonna persecute the disciples, those who are gonna call them names, accuse them of being in league with Satan and the demons. Jesus says, don't be afraid of them. For there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What's whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. He's saying, don't be afraid of them, be bold. These words that I've spoken to you privately, my apprentice says, you will now and speak. go and speak publicly. And then he repeats it again, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, this is his encouragement, by the way. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what Jesus is encouraging right there. And if you think for a minute, you're like, wait, who is that? Who has the power of what you know of the story of scripture? Who has the power to destroy both the body and soul in hell? Well, I'll tell you, it's certainly not the enemy, the Satan. We're never told to be afraid of him. And he doesn't have that kind of power. Jesus is actually talking about God himself. And then listen, he shifts gears quickly. He doesn't want them to linger on that too long. Verse 29 he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid, third time he says it, for you are worth far more than many sparrows. So what is Jesus getting at? He's basically saying, hey, you know what? You're going out, my young apprentices, and you're gonna face persecution and even potentially death at the hands of men. But do not fear, do not be afraid. Just as Jesus preached, healed, cast out demons, taught as one with authority, so will they. But likewise, Just as Jesus was persecuted, betrayed, beaten, and even killed, he's warning them that this may happen to them as well. This is encouragement. (laughs) Can you imagine being a disciple in that moment? You're like, wait, we signed up for what? And we're not supposed to be afraid, but wait, are we? So he's basically giving this perspective by comparison. He compares what man can do to them versus what God can do to them. He says, only man has the power to hurt your physical body, so don't be afraid of him. God has the power to destroy the material and the immaterial parts of your humanity. Encouraging, right, Jesus? But listen to what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to be afraid of someone, don't be afraid of the Romans. Don't be afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. Don't be afraid of the Gentiles or anyone else that can persecute you. If you should be afraid of anyone, it should be the one who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. But the good news is, Jesus concludes, is that you actually don't need to be afraid of anyone. If you were to be afraid of anyone, you should be afraid of God. But guess what? You don't even have to be afraid of God. He knows and cares deeply about you, so much so that he even knows the number of hairs on your head. That's an intimate knowledge and care. And he's like, hey, you know, God cares deeply about his creation. He loves the birds of the air, and he knows if one of those dies, and that even saddens him. And how much more? If your father in heaven cares about the sparrows, which are worth like two pennies, how much more, disciples, does your father care about you? Basically, he's saying God your father offers you the opposite of fear. He offers you care, because you're of so much worth to him. So Jesus is sending them out on this mission, and he says there's nothing for them to be afraid of. There's nothing that they won't face that he has already dealt with. But if we just pause for a minute, let me ask you, have you ever had something in your life that God asked you to do, but you were afraid of what would happen? or you were literally just afraid of what mankind could do to you. You know, the other day, um, I've, I've told stories about riding my bike because it's the most important thing that happens usually in my day. I'd ride through Old Town, and I see all manner of things. I feel like I'm in a Charles Dickens novel or something. It's like, it's intense. And uh, I've kind of made this deal, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, if God, I'm learning to respond to God's voice. If he says, go do this, I try to do it. And I'm like, you know, one for 10 right now, but I'm learning. And the other day I'm riding along, ri- right along a NATO park and I'm, you know, there's like a bike lane, then there's the car lane. And it's nice, this time of year, they give the bikes a whole actual lane. Anyways, I'm riding along that and um, all the cars in the car lane are stopped, dead stop. And I get to the front of it and there's a police car And it looks like he has stopped immediately, put it in park, left the door open, and ran around because right there on the street, or excuse me, on the sidewalk next to the bike lane, is a woman, looks like about 30 years old, and it looks like she's OD'd. So she's not breathing, her friends are giving her, two people are with her, giving her chest compressions, and the police officer is standing um, just right in front of her and he's actually telling them what to do, and I think he's waiting for the EMT to arrive because he can't actually administer first aid. So I ride my bike by this whole thing and I see it, and then I hear the voice, go back and pray. So I like go back, and then I'm standing, uh, no exaggeration, about three feet from where this whole scene is. And there's nobody else there. There's the two giving compressions, and there's the police officer. And so in that moment, I think to myself, what are they gonna think? And then I think, I, she's dead. So I start praying, and so I pray out loud. I'm three feet from them, and I just start praying out loud. And I pray my best prayer, whatever I can think of, for, for healing, and, and then a few moments later, Um, The EMT is coming, the sirens coming, so I move out of the way and I roll on. But isn't it interesting that even in that situation, I still wrestle with what are these people gonna think of me? I still battle daily um, the fear of man in different ways. But I just wonder, What would it look like for us, what would it look like to have this kind of perspective that Jesus is asking his disciples to say, fear no one, I've sent you out. There's still people to be prayed for. There's still a city lost in darkness. There's still disciples that need to be made. We are the hands and feet, the light and love of Christ to this city. And what would it look like for us to embody that like Jesus wished for his disciples? But what's more is um, there's, there's that perspective, but then there's also uh, this week, I've just been wrestling through this idea of fearing God. Because it seems like Jesus really is telling his disciples there are aspects, and yes, there's like the deep respect and the awe of God, but what does it mean, this is kind of what I was wrestling with and I'm bringing you into it, what does it mean for us today as followers of Jesus in the new covenant, this side of the cross, To fear God. In what ways should we fear God? I mean, I know that it's not a fear of punishment because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8.1, we know that all punishment and all um, that we deserve because of our sinful life was taken by Jesus on the cross. So there's none of that left to do. That's done. Past, present, future, all paid for. So it's not that. It's not a fear of punishment. So what is it? And I landed on a couple of things, and obviously I emailed Dr. Gary Breshears and asked for his input, I can't claim this is all mine, but a couple of thoughts. One, I think for me and for those of us who are in Christ following the spirit, there is a fear of disappointing God. I can be totally forgiven, child of the most high God, in the middle of eternal Trinitarian love, and still disappoint my heavenly father. God accepts me, but he doesn't always approve of my choices, right? I mean, it's like, think if you're a parent or just imagine your kid does something foolish, you don't like put your arm around them and go, you know what, that was great. No, there's a time as a parent and as if you're a coach or if you have any kind of influence, there's a time to call out choices that were not the best. But in that moment, is there still love and acceptance, compassion? Absolutely 110%. I mean, I think about my own parents, and I'm 43 years old, but still I want my parents to be proud of what I do. Now, I don't doubt their unconditional love for me one bit at all, but I still want my choices, my actions, to bring them delight. And I think that's what we're getting after. But secondly, there's also a healthy fear that I've experienced that my deliberate sin will bring God's discipline. God's discipline for us, his children that he loves, is a real thing. And that actually can create a healthy fear. In the midst of temptation, I have actually been afraid. If I follow through on this, I could get spanked and I don't want that. I don't know, or this, and what would this do to my relationship with my wife or my children or my leadership here at the church? I think there's a healthy fear there. And one of the stories that I absolutely hate is in Acts chapter five when this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, lie to God and God kills them. It's like the church is born, the Holy Spirit comes. This is amazing. And then there's this one little sneaky episode that Luke puts into Acts about this couple that lie to God and get killed and carried out. And you're like, really? The story was going so well. But I think there's a healthy fear in that. So Jesus talks about this fear. He's like, look, you don't have to be afraid. If you're gonna fear anyone, you should fear God. But you don't have to be afraid because of your, your father's constant care and love for you. He loves you so much. He's crazy about you. He even has taken the time to number the hairs on your head. That's crazy right and you know i i was wrestling through that and um a month ago i was meeting with my spiritual director and don't get weirded out he's a retired pastor and he like talks to me about my relationship with god is actually super helpful and uh, we were talking about this idea of receiving god's love and how i process that and we got on the conversation and something came up that actually surprised me i realized that um when i have a good week and i don't give in to my you know sins here i don't get angry i don't lose my t- if i read my Bible every day and have a good week, I feel lovable. Therefore, I feel like I can receive God's love. But if I have a bad week and I've blown it, I have, you know, I've given in to the flesh, I haven't read my Bible, I've been like, or I read my Bible but I didn't, I was like it was open and I was thinking about my to-do list or whatever, right? Then I feel bad about myself and therefore I import that onto God and I go, oh, well, God must feel that way about me too. Now, for sure, our acts and actions can create distance with God. But what I was, kind of as I was processing this through, like the love and the care of my father, what my spiritual director was helping me see is that there is this deep undercurrent of acceptance and love in God the Father that's not dependent on my behavior. And I often think of the, uh, the story of the prodigal son where he's gone off and he's blown it but he's repent he's come back to his father and his father's reception is nothing but delight that's the kind of care and the kind of promise of love that jesus wants to instill in his disciples before he sends them out part two you guys with me okay part two uh starting in verse 32 Jesus goes on. If that wasn't enough, he goes on. He's got more to say before he sends them out. He says, whoever acknowledge me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, in kind of the way that I grew up and, and learned the scriptures, I always thought of this as a public you know, like getting the office, excuse me, everybody in the office getting the attention and standing up and saying, hey, I haven't told you guys this before, but I'm gonna tell you now, I follow Jesus, I go to church every Sunday and I read my Bible. You know, I thought of it as like this public thing, right? Which I think that's part of it, but also if you think about it, you and I acknowledge Jesus in thousands of different ways every day and every week. The way that you handle and live out your sexuality and your money, and your power over others. If you've given authority in your workplace, or in school, or whatever, the way that you live that out in your neighborhood, in the gym, in your workplace, is acknowledging Jesus in every small choice that you make. Jesus goes on, verse 34, and he says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. This is a metaphor, relax. He says, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What is he getting after here? He's getting after priorities. He's going straight to the heart and he's saying, hey, there's gonna be some turning over of priorities. There's gonna be some disruption here and get ready. And then he concludes, man, he's turning up the heat on these guys. Verse 38 concludes, whoever, and I love it when Jesus says whoever, that's an invitation to all of us, an open invitation. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life, will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you, as he's sending these disciples out, think about hospitality in the first century. They literally are gonna be dependent on others and strangers for a place to eat, for a meal, for a cup of cold water, for shelter in a dry and hot climate. So he says, whoever welcomes you, my disciples, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. It's an incredible link in this chain that those who offer hospitality to these early ministers of the gospel will actually be directly serving God the Father. It's really beautiful. And he says, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That's a good reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if any of you gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward." So in this section, the second part of our text, there's this crazy warning of the extreme high cost of following Jesus, but also the rewards. And this is a massive challenge to these disciples' priorities. He's getting ready to send them out and he's basically saying everything in your life is gonna change. And Jesus and his mission must come first. And these things that he says were true for those disciples in the first century, but they're also true as well for us today. So here's his list. He says this, number one, you must acknowledge Jesus before others. And we said that's publicly, but also in a thousand other little ways. Number two, you have to give Jesus allegiance above all else, even family. He's getting at this reality that priorities must change. And it's interesting because Jesus' way and his message is one of peace for sure, but he knows it will cause division disruption and bring confrontation. Jesus is continually engaged in robust controversy if you look at his life. And he's telling his disciples they can expect no less. Jesus is teaching a whole new way to be God's people and he's warning them some aren't gonna like it. Number three, he tells them to take up their cross. He says, you wanna follow me? Here's what you must do, take up your cross. Now the people in Galilee at this time knew what the cross was. There had been a rebellion, um, this guy named Judas of Galilee, and he and those that followed him were 2,000 in number, and Rome crucified all 2,000 of them and lined up the roads of Galilee with these executions. So when these disciples hear that they're to take up their cross, they know exactly what that means. And then he takes it a step further and he says, if that wasn't clear, you, if you want to follow me, if I'm gonna send you out as one of mine, you have to lose your life. It's like it just keeps getting more and more intense. And let's pause on this for a minute. This is super interesting to me. Notice that in life, there's two different ways to lose your life. One way is to spend your whole life pursuing the wrong thing, right? And we all know story after story, and we've even tasted this ourselves, of how you can waste your life. Of people that at the end of their life looked back at their pursuit of money, fame, success, pleasure, whatever the case, and they look back, and on their deathbed they say, what a waste. Going after things that do not satisfy, and in the end, really don't matter. But Jesus shows the right way to lose your life, the right way to give your life up. Jesus literally gives his life out of love for the greater good of God and human flourishing on the cross. And Jesus says, he says, look, this is how it must be because if a grain of wheat dies, it will produce so much more grain. A seed actually dies to produce a crop. And this is how life is. Even our own bodies, our own skin is constantly, not to gross you out, go home and wash your sheets, but it's constantly in a state of dying and being reborn. That's how life is. And Jesus shows us through the cross the way to give up your life. And Paul, reflecting on this later, taps into the key. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So if you want to lose your life for Christ, if you want to follow through on what Jesus is telling his disciples to do, if you want the life that's truly life, that's truly satisfying with God's goodness and human flourishing, it takes a crucifixion. Dallas Willard says it this way, Jesus didn't die so that I don't have to, he died so that I could die with him. We have to die to sinful motives and desires. Newsflash, but not everything that you and I want in our hearts is actually good. Some of you are like, wait, what? Some of those things that you want and desire that I want and desire actually need to be crucified. Especially I think around this whole struggle in our culture and society to present our false self, to prop up a self that is successful or pretty or witty or whatever the case is. We spend so much time putting up a mask constantly trying to present ourselves differently than we truly are, and some of those motives, I think we would gladly like to see die on the cross with Jesus. But we also have to die to dreams, and this is hard. Some of the dreams and some of the things that many of us have worked for and planned for actually weren't God's best, and they have to die. And if you're post thirty. If you're in your 40s, you can look back and you've probably got a couple. And you know, my wife and I, uh, I particularly had this strong passion, this dream to go to Spain to do ministry there. And Jenny had to die to her dream of living in North America to go and we went. But when we got there, 13 months later, God spun us around and sent us back home. And then it was my turn. And I had to die to the thing that I thought I was made to do. But in the end, I realized I was off. I was just a couple degrees off. And in God's grace, he led me through that death for resurrection on the other side. And now what Jenny and I have experienced together is we both have had a resurrected dream and vision for our life. And it's been here in the past eight years and many years to come. I've experienced the pain of working for something, wanting it 10 plus years, and then getting there to watch it die. But sometimes dreams have to die to get them back. First we die so that then we can have the resurrection life in Jesus, the life that Jesus offers that is that abundant real life, what your soul actually wants. C.S. Lewis sums it up like this. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and then you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look out for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look out for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. You guys, when we go with Jesus to the cross, and we imagine our own selves dying with him, when we lose our lives for Christ, we get the greatest reward, which is Christ himself. And with that, everything else thrown in. Even in Jesus' own words, he said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. So the challenge of Jesus is matched with these incredible promises here in this passage. He says, acknowledge me and I will acknowledge you before the Father. Give up your life, you'll find true life. And then finally he says, and anyone who lives like this will be rewarded in the end by Jesus himself. And it's really powerful if you think about it, even Jesus was motivated by reward. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured the scorn of the cross for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus is wrestling with the Father in the garden, sweating blood, and he's saying, if there's any other way, please can we make another way? And then he resolves, okay, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus goes to the cross, but Hebrews gives us this insight into motivation. Yes, submitting in obedience to the will of the Father, but also Jesus went through the pain of the cross knowing there was reward on the other side. Resurrection and life that would follow. So my friends, do you really believe that Jesus has your best interest in mind? He says, come die with me that you may live with me life that is truly abundant and i can just tell you from the little bit i've tasted that i want nothing else but that and what seems like a giant sacrifice to give up in the beginning becomes nothing for what you receive on the other side so i just ask as we kind of are going to lean into the spirit here in a moment what dream or desire might you be holding on to so tightly that you need to release is the father gently asking you and coaxing you to release it to him to let it die that he might bring it back to life or maybe there is a specific mission like the disciples there's something that god has asked you to do and you've been locked up crippled in fear Fear of failure, fear of man. Might it be that tonight God wants to unlock that? And I just sense that there's probably some here that you went after something so hard that you thought was what God had for you. Like me going to Spain. And in the end, it failed. It didn't work. And you feel crippled by that. You're like, God, I thought you were in it. I was in, I thought you were in, and look what happened. And now, I don't know if I can do it again. I just sense that there's someone here tonight, and maybe a couple, that that, for you tonight, feels like you actually have a thick, thick layer of ice frozen, and you can't move. And I just wonder if tonight's the night that God wants you to acknowledge that pain and to let him chip that ice away, that you might actually move into the greater You felt the death, and now it's time to feel the resurrection. Let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit.